Davina said in the announcements, welcome to City Life. It's good to have you guys with us tonight. Thank you again to Demetria for leading us in worship. It was incredible, phenomenal. Um, but if you've got your Bibles here tonight, you can open it up, turn to Genesis chapter 19. We're going to be uh, here and there, but we're going to park it in Genesis 19. And if you're a note taker, God bless you. Note takers are world changers. But uh, if you're taking notes, you can put down the title, Church Gone Mild. Church Gone Mild. But... Uh, as Anthony was talking about, at the new year, we break into a fast together. We're so often talking about, you know, we're breaking into uh, the Bible again together, reading it from cover to cover, whether you're doing it for one year or two years, or just making an effort to dive into God's Word and all it would have for us. And, I, and we don't have a set uh, reading plan as a church. I know the one I do, uh, there, there's passages from the Old Testament, so I'm reading Genesis. There's passages from the New Testament, so I'm in the Gospels, and then there's a, a Psalm or a Proverb every day. Just what I'm working through, and what I, I love personally about that reading plan is you begin to see parallels and how the Bible points backwards and how the Bible points forward, and really, truly, everything points to Jesus, no matter where you are in Scripture. It, we had such a powerful sharing service last weekend, and thank you to everybody who shared, but I remember Tyler came up here. He was talking about what happened in 2017 and testifying about what God did and how he was reading the same kind of plan and how Jesus said something in Matthew that echoed something that David said in Psalms that spoke directly to what he was walking through in life. You know, that's why I love the Bible. Again, everything points to Jesus, which is our hope and our source of faith, but at the same time, it's active, it's living. Every day I open it up for the rest of my life, it can tell me something different, be applied in a new way. It's living and it's active. And I believe that, man, as I was reading through Genesis and Matthew and Psalms specifically in the previous weeks, two weeks ago, that God has really just given me a word for us as a church, I believe for every person here. So usually this pulpit is very much a teaching pulpit, point A to point B, uh, uh, information, but tonight, bear with me. I believe God's given me a word, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna ride that wave, and hopefully, it will every one of us will ride it somewhere where God wants to take us tonight. But again, what's powerful about January and the season in general, as we pass New Year's, is is we begin to think of life and reflect on life, not just in units of days and weeks or months, but we begin to think in units of years and, and decades, and we begin to reflect on life and where are we headed and what are we coming out of. Because so often when you get caught up in the wave of life and busyness, you begin to pursue transformation that's microwaved, the quick fix in a day or a week. But so often sanctification, so often life change, so often following God is a long process. It's a journey. I love what the theologian Eugene Peterson, he described discipleship in his famous book as long obedience in the same direction. That following Christ and living a life of discipleship is long obedience in the same direction. Following Jesus, it's not, a, it's not a holy hobby. It's not just a pastime or a part-time pursuit. It is a perpetual assignment. It's long obedience in the same direction. That's why Jesus would tell people who came to him and asked to follow him in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus says, to these people who wanted to follow him, that anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And I, I quote that verse because that, that idea of looking back is going to be key in our thoughts tonight. But what I was actually reading in the Gospels that sparked all of this was in Matthew 5.13. Matthew 5.13, maybe you heard this verse. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt 
if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. So even just reading that during our fast, salt speaks to what's going on in the church because we're not eating. Well, some of us aren't. I, personally, I'm doing just one hour a day of eating. So I knew this was coming. So those three nights before the fast, you better believe I was gorging. And I'm a, I'm a fan of popcorn. So at about 11.30, each one of those nights, big old bowl, you know, that you can wrap your arms around. And before Steph could even get to the couch, it was usually gone. You know, popcorn's a good source of fiber. I also make it a good source of butter and salt, right? So it's, it's all of the above. But, man, of course, if we're reading this verse in the middle of a, of a fast and we talk about salt, we're going to think about salt on top of food because right now I'm hungry. I'm ready to eat after service. Just said the word flavor. It's stirring up hunger pains, right? But you'll see Matthew 5, 13. As people handle this truth and, and what is Jesus getting at and what is Jesus teaching, you'll see it from a bunch of angles, and it's for good reason. It's because salt has so many uses, not just in our day, but in Jesus' time, it was used for all kinds of things. It was used for flavor, sure, but it was also used as a preservative. It was used for fertilizer. It was used for treating wounds. It was even a medium of exchange and currency, among other things, as they would barter. But, you know, the second note in terms of, of, of salt is we've been obviously getting a lot of snow. Right? And I remembered for the first time in my life as a responsible adult, before we got the, the inches before, you know, a couple weeks ago when we got a lot, finally remember for the first time in my life to put salt down before the snow came. Surprising how much easier it is to, to shovel the driveway and uh, less exertion it is when you remember to put salt down first. But it was after that Right before this fast, when I, when I was also in my reading plan, I read in Genesis 19. Now, Genesis 19, it points to looking back. It mentions salt, and uh, it's probably one of the, the biggest, wait, what? Like, like pause passages in Scripture where you, where you stop and you're like, wait, what just happened? You start asking questions. And it's the story of Lot's wife. God's judgment is falling literally on this city that's marked and saturated by sin, and angels have come to Sodom and Gomorrah, to rescue Lot, this righteous man and his family and his wife. And it's in Genesis 19 that we turn. And I'm going to read, not the whole chapter, I'm going to read uh, verses 15 through 17 and then 24 through 26. 15 through 17 and then 24 through 26. It says in verse 15, that at dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. It says, when Lot still hesitated, the angel seized his hand in the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them safely outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. And it goes on to say in verse 24, Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Again, it's one of those verses where you're like, wait, excuse me? What just happened? But you know what actually sticks out to me when I read this passage, first and foremost, 
is you're, you're reading, and the angels are warning. They've come to rescue Lot and his family, and they've told him what's coming. But it says, it, it, here it says Lot hesitates. In the King James Version, it says Lot lingered. Why would Lot linger when he knew what was coming? Well, there's a good chance that he had a lot that he had to let go of. The angel didn't show up with the big size U-Haul so he could pack up and take all the things he wanted to take. Chances are he was just grabbing what he could to leave. No doubt there was a lot that he could look back on. You know what? As we read through Genesis again this year, one of the most challenging passages in Scripture to me personally isn't Lot, but it's Lot's uncle, Abraham, where God comes to Abraham, speaks to Abraham for the first time, right? This is the first time Abraham is hearing from God. God says, leave your land, leave your relatives, leave your family, and and go where I'm going to tell you to go. Basically, the very first thing he ever says to Abraham is, hey, leave everything you've ever known and come follow me. And what's, I think of how I would hesitate, how I would ask so many questions. We don't see that with Abraham. He goes. What we see with his nephew Lot, we see Lot lingers. Maybe it's because he lingers. It's because he pauses to consider that the angel gives this command as they're leaving. Hey, don't look back. Don't look behind you, right? To, to linger or look back, you can lose this deliverance you're having. You know the number one cause of traffic accidents, according to, this is a mouthful, let me read it, the crash investigation team of the Traffic Safety Training Center. It's a mouthful. They need an acronym. But the number one cause of accidents, what do you think it is? You had to guess. Texting and driving. Drunk driving. Right? These are just some of the low-key, personally, uh, Sneezing and driving. You don't hear about it, but man, when I sneeze, I'm not sneezing once. I'm sneezing like six times in a row, and nobody sneezes with their eyes open. When I start sneezing and driving, I'm like, Jesus, literally take the wheel, because <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that's somewhere in the top ten. Like, if I was on Family Feud and we were running out, that would be a guess, sneezing and driving. But I think somebody said it. The number one cause of accidents with drivers is rubbernecking, right? Not keeping our eyes on the road. Looking back at that eye candy, whether it was a, a billboard, whether it was uh, just beautiful scenery, or more often than not, an accident. A solution that uh, the United Kingdom has worked on is they'll put a divider up. They'll put a screen up, literally in the middle of the highway, so that people can't see. And it's, it's been found effective, uh, except for apparently when the wind picks it up and blows it across the highway. <laughs> apparently it's still a work in progress. They're working out the kinks. But when it sits still, it, it proves to hinder rubbernecking and the accidents that are caused by rubbernecking. And this idea is you can't be distracted by what you don't see. You can't be distracted by what you don't look at. You know, I always figured, like, they're building 64 up and they're putting these walls up on the side of the highway. I always figured that was for the residents, that they don't have to hear it, that they don't have to see it. And I'm sure that's part of it. But I was reading up, they also do that so drivers, as they're driving, they're not looking to the side. They're keeping their eyes on the road. The same reason they put walls up in the middle of the highway is so you're not looking at, again, what's going on on the other side. You're keeping your eyes right ahead of you. They're trying to squash rubbernecking. You know, in this life, we're called, like Lot and his family, as they were called out of Sodom and Gomorrah. As Peter would tell the first converts of the church that we're called out of this crooked generation. We're called to get up and get moving and follow Jesus Christ. There's, there's a motion that we're called to. We're called followers of Jesus Christ for a reason because we're called to get moving and follow him. But how often in life do we get caught rubbernecking? Causes us to stop, maybe causes us to peel off a direction we shouldn't peel off in. 
That's why we started with Jesus' statement right out of Luke 9. Because in this passage, he's responding to people who wanted to follow him, but got caught rubbernecking, looking back at responsibilities, looking back at distractions, looking back at all those other things that could have kept them back. It's likely what Lot's wife was doing in this passage. We don't know for sure why she looked back, but we do know there was a next-level train wreck going on behind her. They didn't have fireworks in those days. It was probably a remarkable sight. The same fascination we have with fireworks was probably matched with that morbid curiosity to look back and rubberneck and watch the train wreck and watch it burn. But, you know, as a kid, when I'd hear that explanation, it was kind of scary to me. She just gave in to this human instinct to take a glance and was re- remembered for all eternity and punished as this pillar of salt. I was like, that's kind of a raw deal. But it's also likely when you begin to study scripture that it highlighted something deeper and more significant. This word look isn't just talking about a a casual glance. There's a a longing and there's a lingering. But still, the account raises questions. She becomes a pillar of salt. It's still wild. And I'm readying myself for Raj. Right now he's still syllables. Ba, 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 da, 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 da. And, And he's not dropping many words at this point. But I'm ready. Many of you have warned me, once he starts talking, it doesn't stop. You're going to want to have an off button, right? And I'm ready for the the questions. I'm ready for the why. Why this, that? Why that? And I read this passage, and I start asking why. Like, why a pillar? Like a statue or monument? This is like some Chronicles of Narnia type stuff. Like, why that? And if if it's truly a pillar, like a monument, why not marble? Why not something that would last for generations as a warning? Why salt? Why salt? Well, first of all, salt, as we talked about previously, it was a big deal. It was a big deal in the Middle East. Matter of fact, it was the number one source of commerce in Sodom. But in addition to being a, a method of exchange, again, it had many other uses. For instance, one use for, for salt, they didn't have <laughs> AC. Praise Jesus, we had AC. Demetri, come back up. We're going into worship. <laughs> hey, they didn't have AC. They didn't have refrigeration, these things that I love so much. So to, to keep meat or to keep fish from decay, they put salt on it to preserve it. Right? Preservatives for them, putting salt on these things, it was a good thing. Secondly, it was also commonly used, again, to, to heal. You know, we have the phrase like, like rubbing salt on a wound. It's kind of a negative thing. It speaks to making something already bad much worse because if you put salt on a wound, it stings. But in ancient times, it was common practice to put it on wounds because it actually helps create an antibacterial element that helps wounds heal faster. And then, of course, right, salt is a, it's an essential part of our diet. It brings out the flavor, even in nature, Animals will, will commonly lick either natural or artificial salt licks. It's no different in that time. But you know, if I take a salt shaker like this one and I pour it out, the salt's not going to form a pillar. It's going to form a pile. It's going to make a mess. I remember one time, one of my blessed bowls of popcorn, and I thought I was twisting it to grind it. I actually twisted the top off, and all the salt fell on my popcorn. Ruined the popcorn and ruined my night. But it doesn't fall and, and make a, a, the same shape. It makes a mess. It makes a pile. So how, why a, a pillar of salt? Well, salt can also crystallize. You know, I believe when we look at Matthew 5 and we look at this idea of Luke 9, looking back like Lot's wife, our Christianity can crystallize. Instead of being long obedience in the same direction, instead of being forward movement, it can become a monument. It can become a pillar. It can become frozen, stationary, and stuck. 
You know, you can ask questions when you look at the church today, and you look at Matthew 5 and the greater passage that's a part of where, man, if it's a city on a hill and it's a light, it can't be hidden. Like, why aren't we preserving more? Why aren't we having a greater effect on the, the, the effects of sin around us? Why aren't we speaking God's truth and preserving his truth more? Why aren't we penetrating like salt does with flavor, providing a distinct kingdom influence in our world as the church? Why aren't we healing? Why aren't we reaching the lost? Why aren't we rescuing the lost? Why does it seem like the church has gone mild, like it's lost this distinct flavor like it talks about in Matthew 5.13? And I believe when you begin to look at Lot's wife, who becomes a pillar of salt, you look at Lot 9 where Jesus says don't look back, you begin to see one of our problems. It's that we're rubbernecking, lingering. And as God calls us forward in 2018, I believe he would tell us to stop doing this as we follow him. You know, faith in many ways, defined simply as looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, trusting in and hoping in the work of the cross, the work of the resurrection, and the work of Jesus Christ. But faith is also about not looking, not being distracted. It echoes those highway walls and what it says about our focus, that you can't be distracted by what you don't see. You can't be distracted by what you don't look at or refuse to look at. Again, we're called to follow Christ, this long obedience in the same direction. But we, like Lot's wife, often get caught looking back. And I really just believe that there were three ways to hit on tonight, three ways that we look back commonly in life that can cause us to not follow as we should, that can cause us to be a monument or a pillar rather than the movement we're called to be as people and as a church. The first is simple. The first is so often we look back at sin. You know, we have so many uh, selective memories when we look back at our past. Or as psychologists might say we have selective forgetting. We consciously or unconsciously forget the unwanted memories. We forget the hurts and pains and alike. And I believe this is what the enemy does when he causes us to remember past sins. We remember the pleasure, but not the pain. We remember the, <laughs> the spark, but not the stress. You know, it was Lot's wife casting a longing look back on a place that was on the brink of abusing her family just the day before. You know, it's not enough to simply recognize sin for what it is. It's not enough for us to simply regret the sin that maybe we, we committed. We have to learn to hate it, to hate evil, hate sin. Proverbs 23, 17 says, don't envy sinners, but always continue to fear the Lord. Psalm 73 is a powerful psalm that echoes that. But when you talk about fear of the Lord, it says in Proverbs 8, 31, that all who fear the Lord will hate evil. Salt is a preservative, and in our lives, we're either going to preserve a healthy fear of the Lord or fickle hearts that continually gaze back towards sin, and salt is a preservative, and as the salt of the earth, as Jesus calls us in Matthew 5, we're called to preserve God's truth, to fight the decay of sin in our world and our culture, but we can't do that if what's preserved in us is a view of sin that's incompatible with God and his Holy Spirit. Again, it seems like Lot's wife gets a raw deal, but what if God showed mercy to Lot's wife a second time? What if she had been allowed to free, to be free or flee the wickedness of Sodom to a better place, all the time harboring in her heart a love for her past? The virus of Sodom's wickedness would have gone with her to her new home, preserved deep within her, waiting for a chance to emerge. And rather than allow her to preserve the culture of Sodom, God preserves her as a pillar of salt. She becomes a monument to the preservation of evil, a warning to all might see her frozen rubbernecking with this gaze of longing. Again, we think it's harsh, but think about it. She's already been saved once. 
The angels came to rescue her from Sodom. How often, man, we've been saved, but do we still look back and cast that longing look back on what Jesus pulled us out of? Or more simply, how often do we simply doubt the goodness of God and his promises and cast this longing look back at the world? Like, maybe that was, maybe that was where it was at. But again, we're called to be salt in this way that we're called to have an influence on the world. But you can't influence a world that you're trying to be like. Where's your influence? What's influencing you? Jesus would go on to teach in Luke. He would say explicitly, remember Lot's wife. And it says in the English Standard Version, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. But I have up here as well the New King James because in that it says whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Each passage uses preserve in a different place. What are you preserving? Your past life? Are you preserving the life God wants to give you? What are you preserving? A healthy fear of the Lord or this fickle gaze that looks back to the world? May we have a forward gaze toward eternal grace and not a backward one towards one-time pleasures. Sin, man, sin is brain damage. Again, there's this selective forgetting where we look back and think, yeah, that was so good. When, man, it, the wages are death. Jesus reminds us, man, don't look back, look forward. Have a forward gaze on eternal grace, not a backwards one towards those one-time pleasures that really caused all that pain. And that's the second. We might look back at sin, but we also might look back at pain. We can rubberneck our own tragedies, our own accidents, our own pain, to the point where it paralyzes our pursuit and it crystallizes our Christianity, right? Maybe for Lot's wife it was about pain. Again, we don't know why she looked back. Maybe she was looking back in bitterness, hoping to see those men that almost abused her family in pain, getting their due punishment, right? Maybe she wanted to see them getting uh, agonized. You know, past pain handled improperly can be paralyzing. We replay the pain. We feel it all over again. We peel back the wound. And ultimately, we fail to heal, but we also fail to move forward. You know, the problem of pain is not one that's easily solved. It's one we're going to grapple with in this fallen world where hurt people hurt people, right? But we serve a powerful God. And if you feel like you're stuck in a tragedy, my Simple advice tonight is this. Give God the full editorial control over your life. Because the Bible says he's the author and the finisher of our faith. The Bible says that he completes the good work he begins in us. And if you listen close to those passages, neither one promises a life without heartache or without pain, but it does promise a better ending. The ending of your story, though, is contingent on your focus in this life. Rubberneck, and it'll paralyze your pursuit. It'll paralyze your purpose. But if you fix your eyes on Christ and the cross, it gives us a perspective that even in the wake of our pain, our agony, that God can work purpose out of it. If he could do it with the cross, and he could somehow do it with what we go through here. If our God Almighty is the editor-in-chief of our lives, then he can weave purpose into any pain. If we step back and we look at our life in a big picture view, we sometimes find that the strength we found for one chapter came from walking through the pain of the previous one. You know, sometimes the preparation God has for us is caused by pain. Again, sometimes pain just happens because we live in a fallen world where hurt people hurt people. But God can use that to prepare us. Doesn't take the pain away, but it does give it purpose. If the cross could be redeemed, if death was defeated, then we can trust that our pain is not in vain. 
Again, sometimes when you apply salt to a wound, it feels like you're putting salt on a wound. Like the, the phrase, it feels like you're just adding pain when actually it's setting you up to heal. Can we trust God to take us through pain into healing and through preparation and into purpose? It's not easy. It doesn't take the pain away, but it gives it purpose. And it doesn't let us be paralyzed by that pain and, and wrecked in our pursuit. But really where I want to focus the rest of our time, those are the first two, but I believe this third one applies to most of us here tonight at different seasons, is that we look back on good. And let me explain, right? What do I mean? I, we're not actively ruining our lives with sin, and we're maybe not paralyzed by our past pain, but we're simply spending our lives on what's been good enough so far when God wants to take us further, take us from glory to glory, right? The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann has said, it is pure utopia, simply to want to preserve what one has without risking anything new and better. And this utopia of the status quo seems to be the worst of all utopias. That's a pretty big quote to unpack, but this phrase, the utopia of the status quo, is a powerful one. Because I think sometimes what feels safe is to preserve what we have, what's worked so far. But again, salt isn't merely used to preserve, it's also used to penetrate and enhance we're not called to crystallize Christianity or Christian complacency. Spiritually stagnant lives may be stuck in survival mode. You know, there are those times where you live like that, and all of a sudden it begins to feel like empty routine and dull ritual, and you just begin to look to God and look to the future like, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you have for me? What's my purpose? But, man, when you ask that question with all sincerity, you need to be ready for God to disrupt the good in your life and the good you cling to as he tries to hand you something even better. You know, for many of us, when we went to college, we had college orientation. And that was like our first taste of independence, right? You're outside your parents' roof. You're at college. And this orientation is orienting you for this new taste of independence as you're at college. But you know, God so often, he, he doesn't take us through orientation as much as he gives us divine disorientation, where he sets us up to depend on God. If there's one testimony from my life in the past few years, it's every time I get comfortable to where I think, I, I think I got this. God's like, hey, guess what? I'm going to put you over here now. I'm going to stretch you in a new way where you're again going to be driven to your knees and learn to depend on me in a new way. See, Jesus, he didn't host orientations. He hosted disorientation. Sometimes I think we give the disciples this raw deal where we just think, man, they were dumb. Or they, they were just slow to grasp all these things Jesus was teaching. But Jesus was constantly disorienting them to reorient them to his truth. God often will start new chapters in our life through disrupting the good so that he can lead us to something greater. Through what seems disorienting. Again, all the way back in Genesis, Lot's uncle, Abraham, comes to him, tells him to leave his... His, the, the home he knows, leave his father's household, leave his, leave his relatives, that had to be disorienting and disruptive. See, Abraham was obedient, but what I noticed is he's asked to leave a, a whole lot behind, but he doesn't leave Lot behind. And Lot caused a lot of problems because Lot was from his father's household. Should he have brought Lot? When I read God's command, he should have left a lot behind, including Lot. 
And we see that Lot causes these problems until they had to separate. And Lot went to Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see the, the problems caused not just by that, but by Lot's descendants, the Moabites and the Ammonites, that proved to be problematic for the Israelites to, for generations to come. When God calls us into new seasons, he's going to ask us to leave a lot behind. And we need to leave Lot behind. And we see in the same way in Luke 9 where these people are asking to follow Jesus, they've got some pretty good excuses, right? They say, I'll follow you, but first let me bury my father. Right? I'll follow you, but first, let me say goodbye to my family and friends. And it seems like Jesus is being a little too tough. But it's not that Jesus is devaluing family. It's not like Jesus is dissing family. But he's driving home the primacy of following him. There's no place for rubbernecking. We don't memorialize the past, but we move into our future. You know, we had that sharing service last weekend, which again was powerful. Thank you to everybody who shared. I, I told Fred, you know, we were talking afterwards, I could have spent weeks, like, scripting, like, perfect testimonies. It wouldn't have been as good as everything you guys shared about what God's been doing in your lives. And I think of what Tammy Masters shared, right? She was talking about how God was just taking through, stripping all these parts of her identity to rely on him in new ways, even to her career, where now she's, she's with her family, right? Uh, Amanda shared about how God had stripped from her some of those dreams of her childhood so that she could step into this dream he has for her now as a mother in the ministry that she walks in. She's an integral part of this church and all the life groups we do. And she's going on the Dominican Republic trip. And even Anthony shared about the whole Hilt's household. They had a great setup over there in Newport News. Great house. But God called them here to, to Suffolk and say, hey, I got a new way to stretch you and make you lean and depend on me again and hit your knees in prayer. And even when the house wasn't selling and, and everything they shared, right, God's brought them here to build the kingdom. So many people left good things, right, a good campus in Newport News, but disrupting that, disorienting that, and being a part of this campus and building God's kingdom here in Suffolk. You know, God wants to usher in his kingdom. And when Jesus came to do just that, in the Gospels, what was his opening statement? We see in Matthew, Matthew 4, 17, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The Hebrew word for repent, it means turn. Right? Turn from the old, turn from the flesh, turn to the new. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. The time is now. If we want to build the kingdom, though, we have to stop looking back. Right? We're salt. The question is, are we penetrating? question is, are we preserving or are we a pillar, a statue? Because God doesn't want a monument of people who put their hand to the plow but then rubberneck and look back. He wants a movement, penetration, impact, reach, and rescue. Again, even to just wrap up tonight in this thought and put a bow on it. Actually, if I could have the worship team come up as well. I know Roger's going to ask questions. I know one of those questions is going to be how. And then you ask the question with Matthew 5, 13. Okay, how does salt lose its saltiness? How does salt lose its saltiness? And many theologians think that Jesus is speaking rhetorically, that he's saying, look, if salt loses its distinctive quality, it's good for nothing. It can't be made salty again because the reality is, chemically speaking, salt, sodium chloride, it's one of the most stable compounds in creation. Strictly speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. Jesus, again, many think is speaking rhetorically. He's saying, look, salt has this distinctive quality, and if it loses it, it's no longer salt. But what's powerful is, you know, we've been talking. Maybe your focus has been fickle. Maybe you've been looking back more than you've been looking forward. Maybe you've been stuck in this powerful idea of the utopia of the status quo. Or maybe you would simply say, my gaze hasn't been fixed on Jesus Christ. But the enemy would love tonight 
to sow seeds and thoughts where, yeah, I'm kind of like Lot's wife. I've lost my use. I've been stripped of the potential I had. I'm no longer effective that my following has been failed. My long obedience in the same direction has been entirely derailed. But the enemy doesn't get editorial control of your life. Not unless you give it to him. He doesn't get to put a period where God will place a comma. He doesn't get to put the end. This is the end of your story where God is beginning to start that new chapter. Again, God is the author of your faith. Let him be the finisher. Let him complete what he started. Maybe that pain you've been going through. Maybe the the things you've been looking back at. Maybe it's preparation for what you need to be looking at ahead of you. We don't have to be frozen in our now. We don't have to be defined by our past week, our past month, or our past year because of Jesus Christ and the grace that's available. We have the grace where we can turn once more to fix our sometimes fickle gaze that Robert Nixon looks back on Jesus Christ. And tonight I simply want to close by doing that practically in worship, by fixing our gaze, fixing our focus on Jesus. This song we sang, the second one we sang tonight about meeting with God is a powerful one. So I don't know, maybe your gaze has been misguided by looking back on sin or your time in the world. Maybe it's your focus has been paralyzed by the past. Or maybe your focus has simply been prisoner to the status quo. You're clinging to what's been working so far, knowing that, hey, God has something greater. God has a next step. So Jesus, tonight we look to you. God, we want to be those people that put their hand to the plow, do the work that you've called us to do, step in the purpose you have for us, and we don't look back. Jesus, we look to you tonight because you say that you're the author and the finisher, because you say that you'll complete the good work that you begin in us. And Jesus, we thank you that because of the cross and the grave that we have hope. (laughs) We're not stuck. God, where the enemy would sow lies of you're done, you're disqualified, help us to remember your grace, your goodness, and your mercy. Jesus, as we worship tonight, I pray that you would remind us of your love. Remind us of the hope of the cross. God, remind us of the hope that comes with your grace and your mercy. If we could stand tonight, we're going to step into worship. But if you're in one of those three areas in life where you just know you've been looking back, Maybe 2017 was a rough one. There was a lot of pain and you feel like, man, I can't get past it. Maybe you feel like, again, you're clinging to the good, but God has something greater and you're just scared, right? It happens. Let's let that drive us to God rather than from him. Let's let that drive us into his presence. And man, I I would love to pray for you here. Dean and Sue are there in the back. They would love to pray for you back there. But man, every one of us, let's worship and fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you endured the cross for us, for the goodness of knowing us, to meet us in this place. You you died on a cross, so in moments like this, we can step into your presence, and I pray that we would not let that go to waste. God, we worship you tonight in Jesus' name.